Hi, I'm Suresh Roy, and you are listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. In today's podcast, we have Dr. Srinath Raghavan, who is going to talk about his new book, India's War. The Making of Modern South Asia, 1939-1945. Dr. Raghavan is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research and also a visiting senior research fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College, London. Dr. Raghavan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So let me start off with this book specifically. Your previous two books dealt with post-independent India, specifically Nehru and later on the Bangladesh War. What made you go back, back in history into the World War, the Second World War, and look at India's contribution into that war? So one of the running themes through my work over the last 10 years or so has been this attempt to try and uncover India's sort of strategic history, the history of its uh, strategic interaction with the rest of the world. And as you pointed out, I, I initially began by working on the first 15, 17 years after independence, so 1947 to 64. And then uh, lurched forward to uh, do this sort of international history of the creation of Bangladesh in 1971. Uh, but I was uh, always quite clear that, you know, you had to go back and look at the sort of uh, the late colonial legacy to the Indian state and then what had happened and where its uh, strategic orientations, its foreign policy sort of presuppositions, ideas, uh, and all of that stuff come from. And uh, it seemed to me that looking at the Second World War would be a, a, a good way to sort of get into the subject, partly because, you know, there had, been, there had not been any one very good book on the subject. I mean, there's a lot of good work around it, but uh, nobody had sort of uh, cared to put it all together. And so this really was an attempt to go and look at the prehistory of uh, independent India's sort of strategic orientations, if you will. And is there any specific reason why this subject has been neglected by historians of that period? Well, you know, it's partly because Indian historians are not uh, very keen on military history, on things like war and so on, right? So if you uh, think back to, say, the way we are all taught about the history of the 1940s in India, right? Uh, you know, you know that the Second World War began in September 1939. There were a number of Congress ministries in various provinces which resigned. Then very quickly, we get on to the Quit India Movement of the summer of 1942, uh, then, you know, all the Congress leaders sort of being in prison, uh, you know, they come out by the time the war has ended. Then you have all the negotiations surrounding independence and partition, and then you have independence with partition in 1947, right? So in all of this particular storyline, which which all of us have learned, uh, you know, at, at various levels in our education, the Second World War never really comes into focus. And what I wanted to do was to try and bring the war into focus, partly because I thought that uh, historians of India had, uh, you know, hadn't taken too much interest in the war per se. But here was this very large event spanning five years uh, with, uh, you know, tremendous contributions from India and uh, the war also had a tremendous impact on India. So I wanted to do both things together. One was to tell the story of what India did for the war and simultaneously tell the story of what the war did to India. And I hope that's what the book is trying to do. The title of your book is interesting. It's India's War, the Making of Modern South Asia. But if I can quote you from the book, you say that the Viceroy's and the Viceroy's Lord Lithlithgow decision to join the war without consulting the Indians would considerably complicate politics during the war. What was the complication? 
Well, the complication was that you tried to mobilize the resources of a large society like that of India, which is geographically very large, very populous, uh, you know, which, which is driven by various kinds of divisions, uh, without taking into account the most organized political force of that period, which was the main nationalist political party, the Indian National Congress. So what the uh, Viceroy had to do, therefore, was to try and prop up other political forces in order to keep the nationalists under check, as it were. And and that meant that, you know, you had to sort of uh, get on board groups like the Muslim League, which, uh, you know, at the time of the outbreak of war were politically quite marginal because of their very poor performance in the preceding elections. Uh, you had to bring on board groups like the Hindu Mahasabha, which, which again were not in the political mainstream of things. And subsequently, with the various turns of the war, the, the Communist Party of India also ended up supporting the war effort once the Soviet Union uh, became part of the Grand Alliance. The politics of the war was very complicated. How do you mobilize such a large society when the most organized political forces opposed to that form of mobilization? Very interestingly, you mentioned the Muslim League and you draw a correlation that it gained its preeminence and could ask for a separate state after independence precisely because of this war. What? How do you draw that correlation? I mean, uh, in fact, I, I'd go so far as to say that uh, there could have been no Pakistan but for the Second World War. Because uh, at the time of uh, the outbreak of war, September 1939, the Muslim League was, uh, you know, uh, was uh, had, had performed very poorly in the elections of 36-37. It was not in, uh, in power in any significant sort of way in any of the, even the Muslim majority provinces. And the only when the war broke out and the Congress, uh, you know, turned out to be sort of opposing the war partly because the the British uh, leadership at that time, Lord Lilithgow and others, didn't want to bring on the Congress. And in order to sort of, uh, you know, counterbalance the fact of disaffection of the Congress, they tried to sort of, uh, you know, catapult the Muslim League into the center stage. And, uh, you know, there was there were two reasons why they had to do. Uh, in the first place, you know, uh, the two major Muslim provinces of Bengal and Punjab were uh, central to the, uh, you know, any war effort that India would have to undertake. Punjab was the main reservoir of military manpower. And Bengal uh, was the most industrialized province at that point of time. Uh, and, and because of that, uh, you know, what the Muslim League wanted to do was to get one central figure who could more or less keep all Muslim political opinion under check. And this is what they encouraged Jinnah to do. In fact, the Pakistan resolution, which is passed by uh, the Muslim League in early 1940, actually is done at the encouragement, express encouragement of the Viceroy, who says that you have to come out with a clear political program in opposition to that of the Congress. And once the Congress leadership goes behind the bars, so to speak, in uh, the summer of 1942 and thereafter, the Muslim League has an open field in which to, uh, you know, get its political sort of platform for the creation of Pakistan completely out of the way. And the results are there to see when you have the post-war elections are held in 1945-46. Now, of course, these elections were held on restricted franchise. They were not universal adult franchise. But nevertheless, the results of those elections are striking. Because the Muslim League ended up almost sweeping all the Muslim seats. You know, we used to have separate electorates for uh, various communities at that point of time. So clearly there was a very strong sentiment by 1946 uh, about the need for the creation of a separate state or a homeland for the Muslims of South Asia. So in, in, in that sense, I mean, it's, it's inconceivable that all of this could have happened without the Second World War having intervened in Indian politics in September 1939. Very interesting. So this is about the Muslim League and the Congress's opposition and the rise of Muslim League. If you look at the Hindu Mahasava or Ambedkar and the Dalits, their notion of politics has got a lot of cultural dimension to it. So how did they perceive this Second World War or the participation of Indians in this war? 
Well, uh, the Hindu Mahasabha was quite supportive of the war effort. Uh, and they were supportive because, again, the Viceroy reached out to them just as he reached out to the Muslim League. And the Hindu Mahasabha's leader, uh, Vinayak Damodar Savarkar, uh, who was, again, not such a prominent political figure at that point of time, was actually invited by the Viceroy to come and confer with him. And Savarkar saw this as an opportunity to enhance uh, Hindu recruitment into the army because he believed that uh, as as a proportion, the Muslims were sort of as a percentage of their uh, uh, as a proportion of all of India's populations, Muslims were sort of more represented in the army than the Hindus. So he thought, you know, that's an opportunity to sort of militarize, as it were, the Hindu community. He also believed that the war could lead to some form of, you know, accelerated industrialization, which did turn out to be the case. Uh, so so Savarkar and the Hindu Mahasabha saw a good reason to want to support the war effort. Much the same was the case with uh, B.R. Ambedkar, uh, the leader of the Dalits. Because uh, Ambedkar was again sort of uh, bought on board by the government of India. In fact, in 1942, Ambedkar was even appointed the labor member of the Viceroy's Executive Council. You know, effectively, he was the labor minister in the government of India at that point of time. And in that role, he was very he played a very central role in making sure that labor disputes between uh, sort of capitalists and, and, and workers was sort of resolved amicably. That uh, the untouchables or the Dalits, uh, as they are called now, uh, were mobilized in considerably large numbers for not just to be recruited into the army, but also for various kinds of military manpower, labor, and so on. So uh, so all of these groups saw it as an opportunity. So in that sense, you know, the war did give social uh, mobility to sort of the groups which are at the margins of Hindu society, uh, not just the Dalits, but also the tribals. This is a war of magnanimous proportion in which a lot of resources were spent and extracted. And there's a kind of like a variant of Charles Tillian argument of how wars make state, kind of a structural logic to it. But I don't want to focus on that. The question I'm interested in is that kind of 2.5 million Indians voluntarily joined the war, out of which 90,000 of them perished, right? There were 90,000 casualties, so, casualties. so maybe about 32,000 yeah. died. So the question is that, but before the war, these these forces were not trained to fight at the battlefronts. So do you think they were poorly trained? Were they like hapless cannon fodder for the uh, for the enemy armies? Well, the Indian army in September 1939 uh, was just under 200,000 in number. And it was a force which was primarily involved in internal policing, uh, maintenance of law and order, you know, combating sort of keeping uh, communal riots under check and such like things. And it was used for policing the Northwest Frontier Province, uh, you know, which is where uh, a lot of the tribes and others were there. Uh, and and there was a sort of a minor external role, which is that the Indian Army had from time to time being involved in sort of, you know, combating sort of unrest in other parts of the empire, so to speak. But it was primarily its internal duties which, which took uh, this thing. So the Indian Army was actually a constabulary force uh, at the time of the war. And then you had to, the demands of the war grew first because of, uh, you know, India's involvement in the campaigns in North Africa and East Africa. Subsequently, in Middle East, you know, India had to end up providing troops for the occupation of uh, southern Iran, of Iraq, of Syria. In fact, practically all of the places where, uh, you know, there's fighting going on between ISIS and other groups today uh, in, in Syria were under the occupation of the Indian Army during the Second World War. Now, all of this meant that you had a considerable outlay of manpower uh, to be deployed. And then... Uh, the Japanese attacked Southeast Asia and Burma, uh, which, which again was not something that uh, the British Raj was expecting very much, or at least they were hoping it wouldn't happen. And that meant another immense, uh, you know, requirement of manpower. So you had to sort of expand the Indian Army, uh, you know, from from two hundred thousand to about two and a half million, and uh, you know, 
initially, these soldiers were not very well trained. Uh, uh, those who went to the early campaigns in North and East Africa were among the sort of old, better trained soldiers. Uh, they had to cope with the requirements of mechanized warfare and such like things, which were new things, but they were able to do it. But the the worst trained of the lot actually ended up in places like Malaya, uh, where, uh, you know, new regiments which were raised were sent, partly because there was this assumption that, you know, uh, the Japanese were Asiatics and, you know, you, you could sort of send less experienced troops against them. Uh, whereas you needed the better troops to fight against the Italians in North Africa. Uh, and all of those assumptions, of course, turned out to be completely wrong. Uh, and uh, then in the wake of the retreat from Burma, the Indian Army had to spend a good part of the next two, two and a half years completely changing itself organizationally and, and training once again uh, to, to to fight the Japanese in Burma. And, and all of that paid off in the campaigns of 1944-45. You say in the book that... Uh each major policy decision that Churchill and his government was taking with respect to India, each decision was very sensitive to its effect it would have on the American public opinion or the political leadership there. Why was that the case? Well, by the time uh, the Japanese attacked Southeast Asia, and it was coincidental, I mean, in a sense, it was at the same time as the attack on Pearl Harbor and, and the involvement of the Americans into the war. And by that time, it was very clear to the British that uh, American support, both economic and military, was going to be indispensable for them to be able to prosecute this war. And much the same was the case as far as India was concerned. Uh, the American Lend-Lease program was also extended to India uh, by President Roosevelt at that time. But Americans were also uh, very clear that they did not want to prop up the British Empire in India in, in the post-war period. I mean, they did not believe that. Uh, they saw themselves ideologically as sort of anti-colonial. Uh, and in any case, they believed that in the post-war sort of scenario, uh, there was no idea of sort of propping up the old European empires. So as part of this, Americans were very receptive to Indian nationalist opinion. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of American sort of journalists and others who who came, lived and observed what people like Gandhi and Nehru were doing. They had close connections with them. And through that sort of chain of information transmission, uh, American policy was being influenced in a direction that was more sympathetic towards the Indian nationalists. And it was in order to sort of keep the American sort of public opinion and the kinds of mood within uh, the White House, so to speak, uh, under check that Churchill actually agreed to some kind of conciliatory overtones towards India, like sending the Crips mission. Uh, but once the Quit India movement began and it became clear to the Americans that the Indian National Congress was now sort of irrevocably opposed to the war effort, then they decided to go soft on Churchill. And even prior to India's independence in 1947, it seems that irrespective of, what, irrespective of what India's position was at that moment as a colony of the Britishers, there's a great sense that India is supposed to play a greater role in providing security to a large part of Asia and the Indian Ocean, especially in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. But history did not turn out that way in the post-independent era. Why do you think that's the case? Well, in the first place, you know, that particular aspiration was not just notional, right? It was not just a set of ideas that people had. But in effect, that was the role that India had been playing as part of the British Empire. Uh, India was a kind of a sub-imperial system, which used to provide security to this arc of territory, you know, stretching from Hong Kong uh, to, to Aden on the other side, and uh, east coast of Africa, uh, the Indian Ocean, etc. So the idea was very much that, uh, you know, India would have sort of continued along those lines even after ceasing to be part of the British Empire. Uh, because, you know, you have to recall that in 1945-46, the two other major Eurasian powers uh, were, were not in the reckoning, as it were. 
Uh, Japan was prostrate after the defeat, and and you know it, it looked like there's going to be a long period of recovery under American tutelage. Uh, China was still embroiled in the civil war. It's only in 1949 that the People's Republic is created, and you know the nationalists sort of uh, move over to Taiwan. Uh, so in, in in this interregnum, uh, when when the new Asian order is sort of still uh, coming into place, uh, it did seem like India would be well positioned. But then uh, there are two events which more or less uh, contribute to the you know uh, to why this dream did not work out the way it was. The first, of course, was the partition of India. Uh, with the creation of Pakistan, you know India's sort of ability to project its power, influence, uh, people money, etc. In, in, on the Western side, you know, uh, starting with Afghanistan, southern Iran, Iraq, the Gulf states, all of which were under sort of some indirect form of Indian control, uh, ceased to be the case, right? Uh, you, you just couldn't do it. And especially when you had an antagonistic relationship with Pakistan, which, uh, which continues today. The other thing was, uh, you know, the consequences of uh, the war on Burma. Now, we must remember that the first partition of the subcontinent happened not in 1947, but in 1937, when Burma became sort of a separate entity from India. But what the war does is to uh, really devastate Burma. Burma is under uh, Japanese occupation during the uh, the British withdrawal from Burma. They sort of blow up most of the oil fields. Uh, and then subsequently, the you know campaigns of 1945 are again played out in Burma. So uh, Burma is a country which is devastated by the war. And the British uh, come to this conclusion very quickly that reconstruction of Burma was uh, going to be a very challenging task uh, and that they were not really interested in that. They would rather concentrate on places like Malaya and Singapore, uh, where, where, where there were much better prospects. So uh, and so Burma is kind of uh, allowed to become independent from the British Empire, but also uh, very quickly then Burma sort of faces all these kinds of new insurgencies which uh, crop up all across uh, which are still playing out in some ways in Burma. And and the country undergoes a long period of introversion and involution and an invert turn happens. And and so the self-imposed sort of isolation of Burma in, now also cuts off India from, uh, particularly Eastern India, from you know everything uh, that linked it to Southeast Asia, right? So the entire sort of the Great Crescent stretching from Calcutta to Singapore uh, gets fragmented because of the sort of involution of Burma and, you know, all the other things that happen in Malaya uh, and Singapore. So, in effect, India is no longer able to project its power uh, either to its west or to its east in, in quite the same way. And very quickly, the new Indian state is uh, landlocked into two sort of continental problems. One is that of the unsettled boundaries with Pakistan and subsequently with China. And, and that means that, you know, your ability to project power uh, is all, it's quite circumscribed. In contemporary world politics, there's a lot of talk about rise of India in Asia and how India can play a crucial role in this notion of pivot in the region, as a pivot in the region and all. Where, how do you place your work in the contemporary debates around rise of China and this Indo-Pacific region becoming a very, very important international arena of conflict and cooperation? Well, I mean, uh, in a sense, my attempt to go back and look at this history was uh, came out of uh, a confrontation with the same set of questions that you're talking about, you know, uh, sort of working at a place like Center for Policy Research in Delhi, uh, you know, where we're studying contemporary Indian foreign strategic policies is my day job. Uh, you know, it, I, I was drawn towards precisely these sets of questions. And this is what wanted me to go back and look at India's role in Asia in, in, in this similar way. Uh, and, and it seems to me that, you know, while the basic assumptions are all true, which is that India's economic rise uh, and its 
potential for sort of obviously conversion of uh, economic power into military power, its uh, ability to sort of project power, etc., will grow over a period of time. And that, you know, we will come to be asked to play a much larger role in India. But at the same time, I think, uh, you know, while working on this book, the one thing which did strike me is that, you know, all of this is also premised on India's ability to sort of uh, integrate the Southern Asian sort of region, you know, which includes places like Pakistan, Burma, uh, under, uh, you know, in, in, in new ways in economically and strategically, right? So long as India is confronted with an immediate neighborhood that is divided, that keeps its energy sapped, its ability really to be playing a major role in extra-Asian affairs outside of the subcontinent uh, is, is, is going to be something of a question. And I think uh, that's going to be one of the major challenges for uh, India is how do you sort of think about uh, integrating the subcontinent under your leadership, uh, not in political ways, obviously, um, but but in, in, uh, in other kinds of economic and uh, ways that allow you to project your influence, not just in the region, but beyond it. To conclude, you are currently working on the history of the 1960s and 70s, the so-called lost decade. What is what is the contemporary relevance of studying that decade? Well, uh, you know, that, that book is a, is a bit of a turn for me as well from uh, because this is the first time that I'm actually studying a period of Indian history in its own terms. And one of the reasons I want to sort of examine the period between the mid-60s and the mid-80s, so to speak, uh, the long 1970s, as I call them, uh, is because I think that period is crucial to understanding where contemporary India comes from, right? Because that's the period when we went from being, you know, broadly, and to put it somewhat crudely, a Nehruvian sort of polity economy society, right? So there was a post-colonial compact of a certain variety that the Congress party was able to forge, and then a certain model of uh, state building of economic development of uh, state-society relations, which came into being at that part of time. Uh, and then uh, it's in the long 70s that this particular model gives way to another model uh, where uh, the Congress Party's dominance is no longer assured in the political system, where uh, we move towards a very different model of economic growth premised on sort of liberalization, embrace of globalization, and uh, where, uh, you know, where there are completely new kinds of uh, social actors in both politics and, uh, you know, sort of groups which are outside of formal politics, right? So, so uh, to understand this great transformation of uh, in, which leads India to where it is today, I think it's important to focus on the 1970s. And I hope to do so, uh, not just by looking at India, but placing India in a sort of a wider context of the global 1970s and the wider sort of global changes that were happening. How did they impact on India? So, so that's the history I want to write. Dr. Raghavan, all the very best with your future projects and I hope you continue to enlighten us with such fascinating books. Thank you for your time and talking to us. Thank you. Great to be here.